0: All right. We're going to Psalm 145. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. In fact, over the next four weeks, we're going to be sitting in this Psalm. Okay. We're going to be looking at different sections of it um, because this is a Psalm of David. King David wrote this and and he's really just praising different attributes of God. Um, And we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at those four different attributes. All right. So we are beginning in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The word of the Lord. Uh, You guys remember this? Anybody? It was like really popular in the 90s. So you're like, dude, I wasn't even born yet. Okay. Maybe it predates you a little bit. I'm totally dating myself. All right. Um, This was a thing. Just take my word for it. This was a thing. People had stickers on the back of their pickups. We had it on our skateboards. Some people even had it like tattooed on their back, you know, like no fear, right? Um, and, and it was, seemed to always be associated with, with flames and skulls and anything to, to make it kind of more, more extreme, right? Now, I was a, I was a skateboarder um, in high school and, and have always kind of associated with what, what became known as the extreme sports crowd. I just, I just took a lot of risks and, and, and um, jumped off high things and went very fast and, and was associated with this, this sort of, of thing, right? And I remember looking down a, a 15-foot runway that led to a 10-foot ramp uh, that would launch me over a six-foot fence that would land me in a cement drainage ditch. And I wasn't wearing a helmet, and I was riding a stick with four small wheels. And there was, for a very brief moment, a voice in the back of my head that said, Huh, (laughs) this might not be a good idea. But there's another voice that said, No fear. (laughs) Right? It's like, you don't want to be the wuss that walks up to the top of the ramp, looks at it, and turns around and climbs down. You don't want to be that guy. Right, if you get up there, you're going right, because it's like no fear, right, so you get up there and you climb it, and you go, right, and sometimes you land it, and there's lots of glory, and sometimes you don't, and it's lots of gl- gory and and you know and and even even your blood becomes proof that you're like, man, I got no fear right um and, and that kind of drove me right that that sense that if there was something that I was afraid of, I felt like I had to do it um because I was. Part of how I pushed it out, right? Here's the thing the reality is that even though I participated in all kinds of high risk behaviors, which I really did, um, I was not only fearful, I was driven by fear. I didn't want to admit it. You'd never get me to admit it. But it is true, right? In fact, the reason I wanted people to think of me as fearless and the, why, the reason I needed to push that image even on myself was because I had so much fear. I had a deep fear of, of not measuring up, I had a deep fear of being rejected. I had a deep fear of, of trying my best at something and it not being good enough. I had a very deep fear of not succeeding because if I couldn't succeed, I wasn't worthwhile. Now, maybe those fears don't resonate with you. Maybe they do, but maybe they don't. Maybe for you, your fears are different. Maybe your fear is the, the fear of the unknown, right? And there's a lot of things that are unknown. And so you're just fearful of, of all the things you don't know that you feel like you should. Maybe for you, it's all the loose ends, planning and family, and and you know, and, and all the what ifs that come from those loose ends. All those things that you've tried to organize and you've tried to control, but there's just so many things that are just wild variables that you just can't control. Maybe for you it's fear of intimacy. You're afraid of letting people in. You're afraid of, of letting people see who you really are. Are you afraid of letting people get close? I don't, I don't know what it is for you. But here's the thing. We all have fear. And, and, and fear has one objective in our life. It's control. Because fear and control are like a hand and glove. Um, they go together, right? Fear wants to control us and it makes us want to control our lives. So we try to control to reduce the fear and the more we try to control and can't control, the more it increases the fear. And so we adopt this stupid slogan, right? No fear. And, and that's our, our solution for dealing with it ultimately is to deny it. It's not really there. I'm going to run from it or, or defeat it. I'm going to control it. I'm, I'm going I'm to stop being afraid. I'm going to stop being driven by anxiety. I'm going I'm to defeat this thing. And it's really stupid because it's a losing proposition, right? Because fear makes us focus on our lack of control. And when we focus on our lack of control, it increases our fear. And there are plenty of things in our lives that remind us we're out of control, aren't there? Every single day, things that we read or see or experience that remind us just how little control we really have. And that in that, there is plenty to fear. And so it creates this cycle. It doesn't work because what we're really trying to do is be God. That's really what we're trying to do. So here's the thing, defeating fear in our lives is not about denying it or defeating it, it's about replacing it. We have to replace the lie that's at the heart of that fear. And that lie says, God's not great, so I need to be. I need to be in control. I need to have all the loose ends lined up. I need to be the one that has it all organized. I'm the one that has to think about all the possibilities before they occur. I'm the one that has to avoid all the bad things that could happen. I'm the one that has to take advantage of all the good things that could happen. I'm the one that has to be in control. That's a lie that ultimately says I have to be God. I have to replace that lie that says I can and should be in control with the truth that God is great, so I don't have to be. God's in control, so I don't have to be. That truth is really simple. Right, God is great. <laughs> that's Sunday school lesson stuff, right? God is great, but it is profound in its implication. God is great, so I don't have to be afraid. See, here's the thing. The gospel is good news, and, and you're going to hear me say this a thousand times. The word gospel literally means good news, and that's really important because it's not good advice about how to reach God. It's not a, a good series of steps that you take to fix your problem. It is good news about what God has done to solve your problem. It is good news about how God in Christ stepped into your sin, paid your price. And when Jesus rose again, he solved your greatest problem. It is good news. It is a proclamation, right? And like all good news, it has to be heard to be good. (laughs) What is good news that you don't know? It's still good news, but it's not good to you. You have to hear it for it to be good. And that means you have to hear it not just once, but over and over and over again. The gospel is like that simple truth right? We think, oh, well, I heard the gospel. I believed the gospel. That's now Sunday school material. Now I move on to the, the deep stuff, right? In the adult group, what do we do? We, we learn deep truths or we explore all these doctrines or we, we learn like principles about how to have good marriages and get our finances in order and how to solve our problems. And those are good things. But at the heart of every single one of those problems, ultimately, is that we believe a lie that has to be displaced or replaced by the gospel. We need to hear the gospel, and we need to keep hearing the gospel, which means we need to get good at preaching the gospel to ourselves. Good news is only good when you hear it, which means we need to keep telling it to ourselves. We need to keep proclaiming it to ourselves. And that's exactly what's going on in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 145. Take a look. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David here is is heaping up words that describe why God is praiseworthy and why he is worthy of our adoration, right? He will extol and praise and worship, right? What he's saying is, is God's worthy, God's worthy of, of that kind of response, right? When we get a glimpse of how incredible God is, there are those moments when we do, right? When you get a glimpse of how incredible God is and it provokes within you a response that says, man, you are incredible, man, you are praiseworthy, man, you, you are beautiful, right? There are those moments that, that it flows out of us as a natural response, But what David is talking about here is way more than just a response. He's talking about a determination. He's talking about a regular practice in his life. Take a look at what he says. I will extol you. I will bless your name. Every day I will bless you. Do you think David had these deep spiritual moments where God just overwhelmed him with his goodness every day? Well, does he for you? No. No. Those are really like occasional, those moments where it just overwhelms us. And what that means is that what he's saying is it's not just a response, but a determination. I will every day, every day, praise, worship, extol, remind myself of the greatness of God by worshiping God. Every day I will preach these truths to my heart, even when it is not necessarily a natural overflow. Why? Because here's, here's what we do. When we use our words, we're expressing our hearts. And when we use our words, we are shaping our hearts. So when it's a natural response, it's us simply expressing our hearts. When it's not a natural response, it is us shaping our hearts it is us saying, this is what I need to do. One, because I know you're worthy, even though I don't feel like it right now. But two, because I need to know you're worthy. I need to experience this so I will lead my heart to it. I will preach the gospel to my heart, the good news of who you are and what you've done. Now, as we go through this Psalm, what you're going to see is there are four very specific characteristics that are on our slide, that God is great and gracious and good and glorious. Those four characteristics about God that we need to remind ourselves on a regular basis. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the fact that that God is great. Take a look at verse 3. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. What's the key word there? Did you catch that? I don't know. He's, he's not being incredibly subtle here, right? Great, 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 right? He's, he's saying there's a greatness here, right? That we need to focus on that should produce within us a greatness of response, right? God is great. So when we look at the greatness of God, our hearts should respond and say, He is greatly to be praised, Like there should be a great response to the greatness of God. It should produce awe and wonder and worship and gratitude. So great. It's so great. In fact, it's unsearchable. That's what he says. The greatness of God is unsearchable. Now, some translations say unfathomable, and it means very similar. The the word here basically means you can't measure it. Now, a fathom was a length length of of about six feet, and, and sailors would use it. And so if they were out, what they would do is they would drop a line that was a specific length, and they would measure how deep the water was, right? And if they got out to the point where their line couldn't touch the bottom, the water became unfathomable or immeasurable, right? (laughs) Old-time sailors were a bit superstitious um, with good reason. It's awfully scary to be that far out. It is awfully scary to have unfathomable water underneath you because there are things that live there. And they're really sometimes big or scary and unpredictable. And it makes you feel really small. You're like a speck of dirt floating on a great sea, right? I'm just a little mud man. That's what I am. Man made of mud floating on this vast ocean that has so much power and so much mystery. And it can be absolutely terrifying. Anybody gone swimming before and had your feet just dangling in the water? And you start wondering, what is that swimming by my feet? What, what was that? Anybody? right? Okay. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You've heard about these rumors of man-eating catfish, right? Um, they come up and just swallow you whole, right? I grew up in California. When I went swimming, it wasn't man-eating catfish, right? I was looking for fins. There were sharks and there were stingray. And, 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 and so when you got out deep, man, you knew you weren't alone. And there was enough down there to, to really stir up fear in your heart. It's not a comfortable spot to be in. It's not comfortable to be small. It's not comfortable to be vulnerable. It's not comfortable to have that much power and vastness right under you and to have no control over what it does. See, this is what David is saying. David is saying that God's greatness is unsettling. That God's greatness is not just a source of comfort. It is a source of discomfort. Now, when David talks about God's greatness, he's thinking about um, his power and his authority. Right at the very opening of the psalm, David opens and he says, I will extol you, my God and my king. Power and authority. Unlimited power, unlimited authority. Think about God for a minute, you guys. God is timeless. What that means is that He exists outside of time. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He is outside of time. He experiences it more intimately, more powerful than we do, and and He experiences it more, He's transcendent to it. For for God to be timeless or eternal, what that means is that all moments are present for Him. We have no idea what that is, right? Because every moment passes by. We are trapped in a river of time, and that river is always moving forward. We have no control over its progress. God lives outside of that river. For for him, creation is right now. The end of the world is right now. Eternity past is right now. Eternity future is right now. God is timeless. Not only is he timeless, he is omniscient, which means he knows everything. (laughs) He knows everything that was and everything that will be. He knows everything that could have been. He knows every potentiality. There is nothing that could be known that God does not know. Add that to the fact that he is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful. There is nothing outside of his control. He is omnipotent and he is sovereign, which means he is all-powerful and all-controlling. We're talking about something that is terrifyingly big and powerful. When the scripture says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, it's being very literal. (laughs) There is a sense in which when we really come into the presence of God, not the God we make up in our head, not the God we make ourselves comfortable with, the real God, the God of the universe who creates with simply speaking a word that we are completely undone in our smallness and made completely aware of our weakness and our vulnerability. You guys, that is comforting and completely unsettling. We are floating on the deep, unsearchable greatness of God, and we are completely exposed and vulnerable. Because we're born separated from God, Theologically, we say born in sin. What that means is is we're born separated in a sense or dead to the presence of God. Sin separates us. God was designed to be the source of our life, to be the source of our comfort. We were designed to live in the overflow of his goodness. But because we're born separated from Him, what we do is instead of going to the Creator, we go to the creation to have those deep needs met. And we have to tell lies to ourselves about how those needs can be met. And we keep pursuing things that really can't satisfy. And we keep looking for things that can't really anchor our identity. And we look to those things and say, you'll be my God. And we continually are disappointed, whether it's success or approval or comfort or whatever it is we're chasing down, right? And part of the lie is ultimately, as we're trying to do this, is is that we need to be God. And this triggers in our heart all kinds of fear and distrust toward God. You ever been there? Where the goodness and the greatness of God was not a source of comfort, but a source of threat? See, in that moment, we get a glimpse of how great God is, and it triggers more fear in our hearts because it just makes us feel so helpless. Helpless. And we hate to feel helpless. We hate to feel vulnerable. We, we hate to feel small. Because we want to be God, and it's unsettling any time that we simply have to trust God instead of be God, which happens a lot. And here's the thing, you guys. We're afraid God's hand isn't strong enough to take care of our problem. Or we believe his hand is strong enough, but his heart isn't good enough. We know he has the strength, but we distrust his heart. We will either distrust his strength or we will distrust his motives when God doesn't do what we ask. You been there? When God doesn't act on our timeline. When things seem to be chaotic and out of control. When when you have been praying and it doesn't seem like God is coming through. Those are times when God's greatness can feel foreign and even threatening to you because you can't control it. You can't make God do what you want him to do. And so your heart tells you either isn't powerful enough or isn't good enough. Here's the thing his greatness is too great to be measured. And what that means, you guys, is every time we, with our limited lives, limited standards, limited timelines, try to measure the greatness of God, we will misread it every time. Because you do not have the capacity as a finite being to measure the greatness, the power, the purpose of God. And that's incredibly frustrating. Because it means, in the end, not only are we these tiny little beings floating on the vast greatness of God, we just have to trust Him. Because we can't control Him, no matter how hard we try. You guys, and that's why verse 4 makes real sense. When you look at verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation will, will, will commend your works to another. In other words, they will tell stories. One generation will tell stories to the next generation. And this is absolutely natural. I mean, those who have lived longer and experienced more um, have seen God work in ways that that are encouraging to us and help us, right? And so they share stories that help us give a, a longer range perspective, right? They have a little bit longer view of things. Now, here's the thing. Age doesn't always equate to wisdom. Let's just be honest. There are old people that are just stubborn and they haven't learned anything. And, and that's on them, right? And there are young people that are very humble and very teachable, and they have a lot of wisdom because, because even though they haven't lived as long, they've been very teachable in that process. But the point is this, we ultimately need people around us to remind us of this stuff, You can't measure the greatness of God on your own. You need people around you to remind you of the greatness of God. We need them to tell their stories of God intersecting with their lives, and we need to tell the stories of how God has intersected with our lives so that we can encourage and strengthen one another, preaching the gospel, reminding ourselves that God is not a threat but a blessing, and His power is is not alienating but inviting. All right, there's a video from a sister church in the Acts 29 network um, up in Tacoma, Washington, They've made a series of videos that I thought were very good. So I'm going to share this because this is a story, ultimately, uh, of of somebody saying this is one generation commending the the greatness of God to another. So let's go ahead and watch this video.
1: My name is Mark Alvis. I'm a musician, artist, and designer in Tacoma, and this is my story. About four years ago, I married a beautiful girl named Brittany. started working at a local company as a designer and really took on the idea that my destiny was mine. I believed that I was in control and I would reward, receive the rewards of how hard I worked and how many hours I put into it. I didn't believe God was in control. I believe he gave talents and he gave opportunities and it was up to me to capitalize on that. We've always wanted to have a family, we've always wanted to be parents, but I was concerned that with my current job situation and job stress and the financial climate that I wanted to wait to have kids until I had all that taken care of and, and worked out. Turns out we were expecting super awesome surprise. But even better than that, our first ultrasound, we found out we were gonna have twins. Insane. Had no idea how we were gonna afford it. God continued to say to me, I alone am trustworthy. I am worthy of your trust. Trust me. So I just had to take God at his word. I said, Christ, I know I can trust in you. I do not know how we're going to provide for these twins, but I know that you've got it covered. So we walked forward in that. Two weeks later, I lost my job. Coming at home after that was a really tough time. But again, the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, I alone am trustworthy. Trust me, I will provide I am God and I am in control. A week later, we received $3,000 as an inheritance check from my grandmother's passing, totally unexpected. A week after that, we found out that Brittany was covered 100% under the state health care plan. The baby's pregnancy, birth, as well as their first year of life covered 100% every dime I alone am trustworthy, Christ said. He provided every, every way. A week later, I got a phone call from an acquaintance saying, Mark, we have full-time work. We need a designer. It's a contract to hire a position. What's your availability? I said, I'm free. So in a matter of two months, Christ had plucked me out of a poisonous work situation where I was hating people and hating life. He provided every step of the way. He supplied a debt-free platform. He canceled all of the debts that I had brought on ourselves. He had proved to me that He is God. He is in control. And He alone is trustworthy. God is great so that I do not have to be in control. That's a great story.
0: I mean, it really is. That is the example of, of what it means for, for us to, to commend God's works to one another right? And I can tell you stories like this. I mean, I've got dozens of stories where God has provided in miraculous ways, times when, when we were just out of money and, and, and prayed, and miraculously a check showed up in the mail, literally. And I can tell you stories about how we hit the wall, and, and there were the relational things, and God just broke down walls and moved us in. I can tell you great stories about the, the starting of this church, where, where God just miraculously opened doors or gave dreams or did these weird things, and, and we were like, holy cow, and God just was moving ahead of us. And I commend the greatness of God to you because those are real and powerful. But here's the thing. What happens, because we all know what happens, when the stories don't end cleanly? What happens when the marriage isn't saved and it ends in divorce? What happens when the sickness doesn't get cured and you actually get the worst news? What happens when your prayer seems to go unanswered, and your pleading seems to fall on silent ears. Where is God's greatness in that? The elders of the journey, at one point, got to have a a sit-down conversation with John Piper, who's a fairly wise guy, Um, and one of the elders asked him, What's your advice for us as young guys? What's your advice? You know, we're just kind of starting out our journey and we're, we're just full of vim and vigor, right? We're just, we're running ahead and, and, and God's blessing us and things are happening. What's your advice for us? And, and Piper said, this is, this is my advice for you. Pray for a far-seeing wisdom. Pray that you can see past the present success and the present Failure. Pray for a far-seeing wisdom. See, here's the thing, you guys. Sometimes God's plan only makes sense in the rearview mirror. You know what I'm talking about? You're going through your life, and you're like, all right, my road should go this way, and it goes that way. And I'm supposed to go over the bridge, but it looks like my road's actually going off a cliff, right? And we're like, Lord, really? That's, That's what you have for me? And then sometimes you get to the other side and you look back and you're like, oh my goodness, God's hand was all over that thing. He led every step of the way. All those decisions that seem so random and so weird. I look back and I can see how God just led to blessing and blessing and blessing, right? Listen to me, you guys. If you get out to the biggest picture view, it makes sense. But here's the frustrating part. We're human. And we don't have the ability to have God's perspective. Stories of grace and power encourage us to realize and to fight for the truth that God will tell better stories for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. It pushes us to trust that sometimes you got to go through it before you can get enough perspective to understand it. And sometimes you'll never gain that perspective until you're actually standing by Christ's side. Let me give you a few examples. We have, we have a, a wealth of stories, right, in the Bible itself of, of one generation commending the greatness of God to another right we look at the story of abraham the father of the jewish nation the father of of the faith right genesis 15 tells us that 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 he believed god and it was counted to him for righteousness right so he is our he, he shows to us how we relate to god we we need to trust who god is and trust the promises he gives he's, he's this great overwhelmingly great figure in the old testament when he was 75 years old god gave him a promise that 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 he would be a father of many nations That his children would be like the stars of heaven, and like the sea of the sands of the shore. But, But his wife had been barren. He was 75 years. And God said, I promise this to you. And then he waited 25 years to fulfill that promise. And when Sarah was 100 years old, past the age of childbearing, they had a son named Isaac. Isn't that a great story that commends to us the greatness of God? But let me just ask you something. How do you think Abraham felt 15 years into the promise? How do you think he felt as he watched Sarah go through menopause and it became physically impossible for her to have kids? How do you think he felt when God renamed him from Abram, great father, to Abraham, father of many, even though it had been 15 years and it wasn't happening anytime soon? you got to know that in that moment, Abraham had to struggle to trust the power and the goodness of God. What about Joseph? Another great figure in the Old Testament. Joseph is, is this, again, monumental father of, of, of faith, right? 17 years old, his brothers betray him, beat him, throw him into a pit, sell him to a, a caravan coming by of slave traders. They go and they sell him in Egypt He was 40 years old when the famine hit and his family came coming to Egypt in in just fear of what was going to happen to them. But he was in a position of power to care for them. And in fact, care for the entire Jewish nation. And his brothers came when they realized who he was and they wept and they cried, how could you forgive us? How How could you provide for us? And he looked at them and he said these incredible words. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God is telling my story. And what you meant for evil, he is going to turn it to good. God's in control. But let me ask you something. How do you think Joseph felt about 15 years in when he was sitting in the jail in Potiphar's basement because he had been falsely accused of raping his wife? And he had no idea how long he would rot, how long he would be forgotten, or if he would be dragged out one day and simply executed. How do you think Joseph felt then. What about Jesus? You know, Jesus was born with all the wisdom in the world (laughs) because he was God incarnate, (laughs) right? It says he, you know, God, the, the son of God, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He knew the end of his own story, right? He knew why he had come. He had come on mission, right? And he knew what was going to happen. He would be raised from the dead, and he would lead a host of people into a new creation and a new kingdom for the glory of God and for the goodness that they will have living in that glory, that it was going to be a victory parade. He knew the end of his own story, that he was going from glory to glory entering death to win victory over death, the Holy One coming into sin to remove its sting. And yet he still spent a long night in agonizing prayer on the night of his betrayal, pleading, God, if it is possible, let this cup fast from me. He was praying so hard that the capillaries in his forehead burst and the blood mixed with the sweat. And it was like he was sweating great drops of blood. And you know what? It seemed like God didn't answer his prayer. He was pleading with God. And he received no response. You ever been there? Have you ever been in that spot where you're pleading with God and all you're getting back is silence? Listen to me. God always answers the prayers of his children. And his answer is always yes. It's just not necessarily the yes that you're looking for. God always blesses. See, those waves that come on the surface of God's sovereignty and power are not threatening, they are waves of blessing. And what we perceive as a threat and what we perceive as a loss is in fact God working to work a greater blessing. Jesus never looked back and said, my father didn't answer my prayer. When we get out to the biggest picture, we realize that God is telling a story of redemption and restoration, a story of glory, a story of blessing. But it doesn't always feel like it in the moment. Each of these stories that we look to call us to faith. It is one generation calling to the next and saying, look at the greatness of God in your suffering, in that moment when you feel abandoned, in that moment where God feels silent, in that moment where you feel like you've been rejected or alone, God is not absent and his power is not short to meet you there. God's greatness should not fill us with dread. It should fill us with rest and gratitude and joy and praise. So how do we keep this kind of focus when we're in that chaotic moment? How do we keep this kind of focus when we're in that place of suffering? Well, take a look carefully at what David says in verse 5. He says, "...on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate." Notice that David is not simply talking about responding to God's glory. He is saying, I determine to focus my attention. On what? On God's glorious works. I will choose to focus on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. And I will meditate on these things. Now, meditation is this thing that that feels a little foreign to us. It's not common in our culture. We often associate it with yoga and stuff like that. And we're told, you know, you're supposed to go just empty your mind. Meditation is, is, is focused attention. And the Bible talks about meditation a lot. What it means is not emptying your mind, but filling your mind with a single thing to the point where it fills your vision. It is meditating, focusing on, repeating, sitting in something that you want to fill your mind and ultimately fill your heart. David is saying that he is meditating on the glorious works of God so that they might fill his mind and then fill his heart. What are the glorious works? The works that he has already seen God do that are glorious. He is reminding himself of how God has already worked. Sometimes when we can't measure God's strength because we can't see how it's working. We need to choose to focus on how we know it has already worked. We need to sit in how God has already revealed the goodness of his strength and focus on it and fill our vision with it so it might fill our hearts. Here's the thing, we may not understand how his hand is working, but we can look at how his hand has worked in the past to provoke our hearts to trust His motivation to move us to trust and praise. So we need to push ourselves to trust the heart of God, even when we can't see the hand of God working in our behalf. When we meditate on God's work for us in the past, it renews our faith in the present of His goodness and of His strength. And it battles our heart's desire to doubt God. In fact, we can see how this works in verses 6 and 7. Now, in verses 6 and 7, there's an interesting parallel. Uh, in Hebrew poetry, uh, the poets used parallelism a lot. In English poetry, we use things like rhyming, right? When we look at an English poem, a lot of times it's rhyming or meter. Uh, in Hebrew poetry, they take ideas and they repeat them. And sometimes they repeat them to emphasize a similar concept or sometimes to draw out a contrast. Now, there's a very interesting contrast that comes out of these two verses, right? Take a look at verse 6 they, that is the glorious works, the wonderful works that I've chosen to focus on, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds to my heart, to my mind, and I will declare your greatness. So what ends up happening as I focus on how God has exercised his strength in the past is that it reminds me that his arm is not short to help, that he does not lack power or authority. Nothing is beyond his ability. Nothing is beyond his scope of authority. Nothing extends so far that God is no longer in control. And what does that lead him to do? It leads him to declare God's greatness, to say, truly you are that great one, that immeasurable one, that strong one. But look at verse 7. Because we don't just need to know he's strong. Verse 7, they, that is those glorious works that I've chosen to meditate on, how you've worked in the past, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant what? Goodness. Not just your power, not just your hand, but your heart. When I look at how you've worked in the past, it not only leads my heart to, to be in wonder at your power, It reminds me that that power is moved by an absolute determination to bless your infinite goodness. See, when I sit in these things, it reminds me of your power, your absolute control, and it reminds me of your goodness, that that power is exercised for your glory and my good at all times. And look what happens at the end of that verse. And they shall sing aloud of your righteousness. See, that's interesting because you know what happens, you guys, when we're suffering, we tend to go to one of two places. We hate to suffer, don't we? We really do. We have a very low tolerance for discomfort, right? I mean, we can get stuck in traffic and, and, and we're suffering. And I'm not belittling it, right? Because some of us are suffering with, with really deep and painful things, but the reality is we're all very, we have very low tolerance for discomfort. And so what ends up happening is, is we either start doubting God's power or we start doubting God's goodness, and we usually end up sitting in the second one because we can't get past the first one, right? God like, created everything by just speaking it into existence. You can't really get past that. Okay, God, you're powerful. <laughs> but I don't trust your heart. And what ends up happening is when we see really bad things happen in our lives, when those really bad things happen that, that, that weren't supposed to happen, we judge God's heart. We become the judge over His character. We deem Him unrighteous. If you were good, you would have. If you were good, you would have saved my marriage. If you were good, you would have saved that life. If you were good, you would have prevented that from happening. If you were good, you would have done this. And what we're saying in that moment is that we, our limited little mud brain, has the capacity to, in fact, judge God. (laughs) To sit over him and say, this is the way the story was supposed to go. This is the way it was supposed to play out, and you got it wrong, and I sit in judgment over you. See, what happens when we sit in these works and remind ourselves of God's power and His goodness, it leads us to declare God righteous. In other words, we see not only His power, but His goodness. It humbles us to a place where we can say, even in my suffering, I know you're good they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. That is a humble, faith-filled response to what happens when we fill our vision with the wonderful deeds that tell us of his strength and of his character. And it derails that cycle of pride and fear in our hearts where we want to judge God and take control and we become fearful of limitations and the waves of our life feel more threatening than blessing. When we fill our vision with his glorious deeds, we remind ourselves of both his power and his goodness. And this means, you guys, we need to fill our vision with Jesus because there is no greater demonstration of the power and the goodness of God than the cross and the empty tomb. We need to regularly preach the gospel to our own hearts, bringing ourselves back to the foot of cross because there is no greater exercise of power and no greater example of sacrificial love. The God who spoke the world into existence, I mean, that, that's a pretty astounding display of power. <laughs> Let there be light, right? What's even more astounding is that the author of life entered death What's even more astounding is that the Holy One entered sin. That the One who created life, we rebelled against it and and, and offended the Holy Righteous Judge of the universe. He became not just the judge, but the offender. And He took our place as our substitute, dying our death, and He undid death in dying our death. He reversed our rebellion into a story of redemption and restoration. There is no greater example of the power of God than the cross. And there is no greater display of the power of God than the empty tomb. When the author of life entered death, absorbed its full penalty and came back to life, proving he was victorious and that that problem had been eternally solved. And there's no greater demonstration of the heart of God. You know, God wasn't obligated to do that. There was nothing that required him to go to the cross. He didn't look at us and say, you're so beautiful. I just have to die for you. That's not what happened. He looked at us and he said, you're pretty ugly right now. You're full of sin and rebellion and anger toward me and you're lying about me and you're defaming me and you're trying to rob me of my glory and you're trying to use my creation to do what only I can do. And every time I reach out to you, you curse me and you reject me. And in fact, you're going to crucify me. But I'm going to do it because I love you. There's no greater demonstration of God's heart than right there. When you are tempted to doubt the heart of God in the working of your life, look back to the cross and the resurrection and you will not doubt his motivation to bless. If he gave us Christ, how will he not with Christ give us all things? God has blessed us with his greatest blessing and with that blessing comes all others. I don't know where you are right now and I don't know what you're suffering with. But I do know this, there is nothing you can't trust God with. Some of you are afraid to trust God. You're like, man, I don't know what God's going to do with my life. Let me ask you something. Do you think Jonah was safer on the boat or in the belly of the great fish? So you're like, I don't remember that story. (laughs) Jonah rebels against God. He's like, I don't want your will for my life. So he gets on a boat and sails the opposite direction of where God wants him to go. He seems incredibly safe. In fact, he's sleeping, right? and he's incredibly unsafe (laughs) because he's outside of the will of God. And when a storm comes, he says to him, look, I know it's my fault. Throw me overboard. His first act of humility and obedience. So they throw him overboard. God sends a great fish to swallow him and swim him over to Nineveh. He's safer in the belly of the fish than he is in the boat, you guys. Because that's God saying, look, I'm going to deliver you to where I want you to deliver you. I will tell a better story for your life than you would tell for yourself. And sometimes you're not going to like it in the moment, but in the end, you're going to praise me. I don't know where you are in your story. I don't know what you're struggling with. But there is no challenge too large for God to overcome it. There's no injustice that is so bad God can't right it. There's no suffering so deep that God cannot redeem it. But I can't see it. I can't see how. That's because you're not God and you need to get comfortable not being God. You need to celebrate that God is God, that He is great, so I don't have to be. He is great, so I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to have it all figured out. I can rest. In that point of suffering, I tell you that your heart is often going to go to why, why, why? Why is this happening? Why now? Why me? And God's going to give you the same answer He's given every other human throughout history. I'm not going to tell you why, but I'm going to tell you who. See, God doesn't explain Himself because He is not going to submit Himself to our cross-examination. He's not going to submit himself as if we had the ability to determine what was in fact righteous and unrighteous or right and wrong. He doesn't, he can't, we're not God. But instead of giving us the answer to why, he does reveal his heart and he says, who? He says, trust me in it. That's the only answer you need. Because you can't know everything I know and you can't see everything I see. But you'll know enough and just rest. Because you'll see eventually, you will see eventually that my power and my heart work together for my glory and your good. See, the secret to dealing with fear isn't denying it and it's not defeating it. It's not white knuckling it. It's not self-improvement or, or determining to be stronger or bigger or better. It's about resting. Resting in the character of God and resting in the promises of God. It's about going to sleep in the boat on the vast sea of God's greatness even though you have no idea where you're going or how you're going to get there. It is resting small and vulnerable on the deep face of God's unsearchable greatness and replacing pride with faith and replacing fear with praise and letting God shape us back into simply being dependent humans instead of want to be God's. You guys, we're going to go into time of response I'm going to create some space for you to pray and do some business with God. Um, there's a worship response card in your bullet, and we would love for you to, to fill it out. If, if you have thoughts about the service or you have prayer requests that you would love for us to pray with you and for you, fill that out and drop it in the boxes at the communion table or by the door. If you're a first-time visitor or guest with us, fill that out and let us know you were here. We would love to know you were here and and visit Connection Point. We have a gift for you out there. We would love to to just honor you for being with us. And I'm gonna ask you to stick around at the end of the service. You wanna stick around long. We're gonna have a baptism immediately after the service. Um, And it's a great celebration. And by the way, just to let you know, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, like here's your opportunity today. Like for real, okay? You came dry, you'll go home wet. Not really wet, because we're going to take care of you, right? We got towels, we got changes of clothing, yes, even underwear, right? We got the boxers for the guys and the underwear for the girls. We got you covered, okay? If you're a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized, you have the opportunity to join us today. The only requirement is that you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him as a disciple, being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want to be baptized with us today, we're going to ask you to visit some leaders. We have them over by the door. After communion, just go over there. They'll talk with you briefly to help you make sure that this is the, the right thing and that, and that um, we're, we're in full agreement, right, to move forward with you. And so we'll just help to clarify if you have questions. They're great to talk to um, and, and and we'll help you get ready, okay? So just visit them after communion and uh, and we'll we'll dunk you, all right? seriously. This is a great opportunity. Don't pass it up if, if you're a believer and haven't been baptized. But just stick around because we're going to get to celebrate um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in baptism. It's a, it's a great celebration. Here are some questions for you to consider as we move into our time of response. First of all, what fear is gripping your heart or controlling your behavior? I know it's there. What fear is gripping your heart? Controlling your behavior, influencing your choices? shaping the way you perceive and move through life? What fear is there? And then what does that fear look like in the shadow of the cross or left in the empty tomb? When you you bring that fear to the foot of the cross, when you bring it to the greatest demonstration of God's power and love, what happens to that fear when it is overshadowed by, by the God who is in control and the God who loves you more than you understand? And then thirdly, what mighty works can I praise God for to replace my fear and lack of control? How has God worked in my heart? How does the cross of Christ speak to my heart so that I can move to a place of praise and gratitude instead of fear and grumbling? Let me pray for us move into our time of response. Father God, I thank you that you are a great God, greater than we understand. I thank you that you're a humble God because... Every single one of us have wrong ideas about you. We make you smaller than you are. We make you less threatening than you are. We, we want to make gods in our own image because we're way more comfortable with that. And I thank you that you don't get offended with us and just leave us. You're a humble God who just quietly and persistently reminds us of your greatness, your power, and your control. And even as it terrifies us, you comfort us with your love. We are frail. We are weak we are limited, and we are prideful. Man, I thank you, Lord, that, that you are big and strong and capable and loving. Call our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that you will just, man, for those, those hearts that are just breaking right now, those hearts that are just struggling, that, that there are questions that just seem unanswered. Father, I pray that you will meet them in that place and call their hearts to rest. I thank you that you know what that's like. Jesus, you suffered. You called out. You had to go through the process of letting your Father tell the story of your life. I pray, Lord, that you would bring your comfort to our hearts.